Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Sally Kempton. Sally, would you like me to read your little can bio here, or you want to just tell us <laughs> off the cuff, the, the, you know, a little sure. bit about yourself? Hi, Rick. Hi. <laughs> totally nice to be with you. Yes. So I'm a teacher of meditation, spiritual wisdom, what I call contemplative tantra. And from a Hindu tradition, I've been practicing and teaching for about 40 years. I was a longtime student of Swami Muktananda, whom Rick and I were just talking about, and was a Swami, a monk, for a number of years until the early 2000s. And I've been teaching and writing, so to speak, as a lay person since about 2003. And I've written a couple of books, which hopefully we'll talk about, called uh, Meditation for the Love of It and Awakening Shakti. And hopefully we're going to also talk about my new audio program, which is called Doorways to the Infinite, which is a series of tantric meditation practices from an amazing Sanskrit text called the Vijnana Bhairava, or the uh, the wisdom of the fiery form of the divine. So that's my basic bio. bio. Oh, and I used to write a column called Wisdom for Yoga Journal for a number mm -hmm. of years. Great. Incidentally, at the end, we'll give the details of this, but you're going to be teaching a telecourse starting like the night that this interview comes out. It'll probably come out Monday or Tuesday morning or something. And, and uh, so if people don't listen through to the very end, you might want to go to Sally's website, sallykempton.com and check that out or listen through the very end. We'll get more details about it. It's actually on the Shift Network and oh, okay. it's called the Wisdom Goddess Empowerment. So you can look it up. You can go to shiftnetwork.com and look it up or through my website. Okay, great. I uh, had the time during the past week to listen to your entire audiobook, Doorways to the Infinite, The Art and Practice of Tantric Meditation. I really enjoyed it. And I also read a good portion of your book, Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Power of the Goddesses of Yoga. I really enjoyed that too. In fact, I, I just really enjoyed preparing for this interview. Yeah. I don't know how to do this, but I want to spend a couple minutes uh, just kind of laying out some thoughts and questions that were about things that I think about pretty much all the time anyway, being, mm. a, being a spiritual nerd. But listening and reading your stuff really um, enlivened and amplified and uh, filled in some, some gaps for me. So I'd like cool. to just kind of lay that out, and it'll probably give a summary of what we're going to talk about in this interview, although I'm sure, sure we'll veer off into other topics as well. So I think all these little questions could be summed up in the, in the question, what's actually going on? The first part of it is what I would call the self-interacting dynamics of consciousness. And we've all heard you know, the term non-duality and Advaita, and uh, we've heard people say things like, oh, I was one with the tree, and, and <laughs> things like that. So let's say I'm looking at a tree. Now, you know, the Vedic literature says that ultimately it's all consciousness. I am that, thou art that, all this is that, there's nothing but that. Uh, and so what's actually going on if I'm looking at a tree? If the tree ultimately is nothing but consciousness, and I, my brain, my eye, not only the innermost eye, but my brain, my eyes, my perceptual apparatus, the sun which is providing light by which to see the tree, if all that is ultimately nothing but consciousness, then really consciousness is kind of just interacting with itself, within itself. It's, it's looking at itself, so to speak. So that's what we would mean by the self-interacting dynamics of consciousness. We'll talk about that. That's one point. Next point is the, the fascinating 
thing of the veiling of this, the veiling of our fundamental oneness. If it's really only consciousness, why do we see it as flesh and bone and wood and, and so on when it's ultimately actually consciousness? What, how is it that we lose the, the vision of the essential nature of things? So that's another point. Third point would be the sort of the infinite energy and potential inherent in every iota of creation. I was looking at a talk by a physicist last night, Nassim Haramein, and he was talking about how within every cubic centimeter of, of empty space there is more latent or potential energy than there is in the entire expressed manifest universe. So there's just like this incredibly dense, powerful energy in every iota of creation or of, of, the, fun, of the fundamental field from which creation arises. So I want to talk about that. And then another thing is the idea of intelligence. This one, I think, is the one which people take for granted even the most because if you think about it, there's something utterly miraculous going on right before our very eyes. In every cell of our, our bodies, you know, there are over there are billions of atoms, and each atom in itself is a little miracle, and the cell in, in itself is more complex than a, a major metropolitan city, and we, we only understand 1% maybe of what's going on in the cell, and then we have trillions of them, and they're all coordinated perfectly, you know, to, to produce this miracle called life. And... Uh, and then there are billions of us and billions of trillions of planets in which there are other forms of life. I mean, there's this incredible display going on in the universe yeah. which makes it hard for me to understand how anybody could be an atheist. <laughs> uh, but there's this kind of like a cloud that veils our, our vision of what's actually going on. So I'd like to talk about intelligence. And your books address all these points, I think, and they personalize it. They don't, regard, they don't portray intelligence as merely some kind of impersonal oceanic field, but they, they discuss the sort of the, the expressions of intelligence and the hierarchy of intelligence that governs and structures the universe. So that, to me, is all very fascinating, and those are some of the things I'd like to talk to you about. Yeah, the basic issues. <laughs> The fundamental issues are yeah. are embodied in disembodied life. Yeah. So maybe we should so, start with consciousness. I mean, it might be a stretch for some people to say that everything is fundamentally consciousness. Who says it is? Well, how can we help to explain that it might be if somebody doesn't quite see how it could be? Well, I think for one thing, we we need to talk about how we define consciousness, which of course science apparently has not succeeded in doing. But as far as I can tell, there are several basic views in contemporary science of, of what consciousness is. And then there's the, uh, the view of Eastern spirituality, which, which is, of course, the one that I hold and that we're talking from. But there's a view in, in neuroscience that, and I, I actually heard on NPR of Canadian women scientists expounding on this view with utter absolute certainty. There is no such thing as consciousness outside the brain. And, you know, it's consciousness, in other words, is an epiphenomenon of brain processes. And that's essentially what we would call the reductionist neurophysiological view. There's another view, kind of psychological view, that consciousness is sort of like the press office in the Obama administration, you know, that decisions are made elsewhere and consciousness observes and reports on the processes of the physical body and the the pre-existing physical universe. And the view that 
I hold and that I'm pretty sure you hold is that when we talk about consciousness, we're talking about a fundamental intelligent energy which has which has the nature of awareness and which is the ground, the, the absolute ground of all that exists. So that consciousness, this if we define consciousness like this, it's inside and outside everything. So, you know, the intelligence of the cell, the power in the breath, of course, everything that goes on in the brain is underlaid by this foundational ground beingness, which is aware and intelligent and filled with creative power, which is, I would say, the contribution of the tantric approach to uh, looking at what the world consists of. So that, you know, so we're talking about consciousness as pure being, which has the nature of light and intelligence, and also is fundamentally creative. And one of the texts of the Kashmir Shaiva Tantra, which I love, which is called the heart of the doctrine of self-recognition, that is the doctrine that says you are embodied, pure, divine consciousness, and your task in life is to see that in yourself. One of the things that it says is that if if the heart of reality were not creative, it would be, this is this is their words, it would be something like a pot or a jar. It would be inert and that's obviously impossible. So power, creativity is essential in consciousness. And that's part of, I think, why we are what we are and why we're so allured by this understanding of the world as, as you said earlier, is a dance of consciousness in communication with itself in all these different forms. And uh, creativity just seems so explosive, so prolific. I mean, you know, yeah. you just, just look at the world. And if, even if you go to a dead part of the world, go to Death Valley and get down with a microscope and start looking microscopically at what's going on in, in you know, particles of sand or something. And you, you see this kind of marvelous orderliness and all kinds of microorganisms, you know, and each of them is a complex little world in, unto itself. And so it's yeah. like the, there's this kind of creativity which pervades every, yeah. everything. Pervades matter as well as sentient sentient creatures. I, I think that's the thing that's so radical mm -hmm. about this view that this understanding and which I know is quantum physics, but the table is not, a t it's not inert. The table is constantly, uh, it's a dance of molecules yeah. interacting with, its, with itself. You know, there are these moments which we do spiritual practice for the sake of and which sometimes just arise spontaneously of actually seeing that this is the case, you know, that the world, suddenly the incredible aliveness of the world reveals itself. Mm. And for some people, it's not moments, it's more or less, you know, the normal condition. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, speaking of the table now, you know, on the level of the atoms, the table is 99.99999% empty space. And if you look at the, you know, the little teeny bit uh, that's not empty space and start looking at it more closely, it's not material either. Yeah. There's this sort of fluctuations of the vacuum state or whatever. You know, you probably saw John Hagelin's talk out at the SAND conference. And, and you, you can boil it right down to understanding that everything is kind of just this universal field, unified field, they call it, which is just interacting within itself, self-referral. Self yeah, yeah. self-referential. It's, right. it's an extraordinary vision that arises as you contemplate this. And that's what I mean by the question, what's actually going on? 
because yeah. you know we see a table we take it for granted it's a table and it has a certain practical utility and we we treat it as a table but if we could actually look closely enough we could see there's no table there it's just this field of pure potentiality sort of apparently arising in the form of a table but you know it's just that's only from a certain relative perspective that we are yeah. neurologically equipped to have otherwise there's nothing there but you know pure potentiality just sort of percolating yeah yeah you know what one of the ways that advaita of course describes it is as a dream you know that that even though it it feels completely real and solid to us that in other states of consciousness it doesn't exist at all and the thing that's kind of extraordinary about it is that the underlying viewpoint about the creativity of consciousness is that it's all coming from inside and that by inside we mean our our brain but we also mean that which is behind our brain so in a certain sense on the inside of the inside the creative process is manifesting worlds and fields and universes which which we are equipped to experience as being external to ourselves because of of the way we're wired but which if our wiring uh, were to be tweaked just a little bit um, which is what meditation and, and other modalities that open the doors of perception are all about we can actually see that the table is appearing as a solid table but actually arising and subsiding inside this kind of energetic field in which the particles come together and separate even while in our normal vision we are seeing something solid yeah and, and you wouldn't want to not see it as a table or, yeah. or, or as a wall or this because you wouldn't be able to function um, exactly and i don't know about cashmere shaivism but i've heard the term leisha vidya i'm not sure if cashmere shaivism has that term but it's faint remains of ignorance in which mm. you know your predominant vision of the table is this is my own self this is pure consciousness uh, when yeah. sec secondarily okay yeah i see it's a table there's some greasy surface of, of like that, that's the analogy is that you take a butterball in your hand and then you throw it off and, and there's some greasy surface left so right if enlightenment were a state in which all there was was consciousness and, and objects couldn't be distinguished it wouldn't be able to be a living reality yeah and I think that the enlightened awareness that my tradition celebrates which my guru used to say that when people would ask him, what do you see? He would say, well, when I look at something, I see the light of consciousness because he saw the world as, as light. And then I see the object rising inside it. But there's always that initial perception of the light field out of which every, everything is being manifested. So what he would say is that, in fact, in his perception, everything that's arising is arising from light and is made of light and what we call particles of matter and energy appear as light particles so you know in a certain sense the enlightened vision is literally enlightened it's it's a vision in which you you actually see the foundational light yeah. inside everything that's great that's exactly yeah. what i was trying to describe so yeah beautiful let's just see have we really covered it for the for the truth we're never going to convince hardcore skeptics you know, like that mm. woman you saw, you heard on NPR, because they really have to have the experience. But is there anything else we can dig out of here in terms of consciousness being the fundamental reality and everything arising from that, rather than consciousness merely being an epiphenomenon of brain functioning? Well, I think one of the really 
convincing arguments of quantum physics is simply that when a consciousness interacts with any object on the, in the quantum world, it transforms the field because there is a constant interaction between the observer and the field that is apparently being observed, but which is actually in constant communication with what we consider the observer. Mm. I know that people say that you can't really prove consciousness in the spiritual sense from quantum physics, and a lot of quantum physicists get kind of impatient and annoyed when people like us start citing physics as, a, as the proof of the existence of this non-dual uh, subtle field. But on the other hand, I do know, and we all know, physicists who who follow that perception to its source and you know, are actually able to realize that when we talk about a quantum field, we're talking about something that is microscopically visible, but actually points to the presence of a much subtler underlying reality that's even subtler than the quantum world, mm -hmm. which is what you know, we would call the foundational light world or the foundational consciousness. I also think it's very interesting to talk about this whole process as the process that begins to unfold as we begin to understand the way the neurological system works to create differentiation in what we see. I read recently about a, an experiment that was done where they put goggles on people that distorted their vision so they saw everything upside down. So the goggles would actually make you, they would actually give you the, the sight of the tree. I'm looking at a tree and at your bookcase as upside down. But they said that within three to four minutes, the brain would perform an operation where it turned it right side up because the brain knows that the tree is not growing out of the, you know, out of the sky, it's growing out of the ground. So it would just uh, correct perception. And that seems to be what the brain does. It, it's like our neurological wiring is set up to give us the experience of a perceiver that's separate from what's perceived. And no matter what, when we're in our ordinary state of consciousness, when we haven't taken a psychedelic drug or something that actually shifts perception physically, we are constantly being given the experience of you there and me here and the computer in between us and etc. So I actually think that something has to shift inside the human field of perception in order for a human being to be able to see directly what reality is. And of course, in our generation, those first shifts of perception actually happened through psychoactive drugs because we were able to take a pill and suddenly look into reality and see that there was light that manifesting as, as objects. But of course, the more skillful and more lasting and more profound way of doing this is through meditation. And I want to say one more thing, which is really the basis of the tantric teaching that I was trained in and that I espouse and that has been my experience, which is that the creative power that actually wires us the way we are wired actually has to rewire us. In other words, it's not something that, that a human being does on our own. In Advaita, they say the eye can't look at the eye. It's impossible to, for the eyeball to screw itself around and <laughs> see itself except in a, a mirror, of course. In the same way, it's not a human operation to rewire our perception so that we can see the unity underlying everything. And the way this happens, according to the Tantra, is that the foundational energy that has actually manifested all this from the time of the Big Bang it begins to wake us up 
to shift our perception, to to reprogram our physical and subtle body so that we are actually able to perceive reality as unity and as what's sometimes called duality and unity, as we were saying, the, the table appearing inside a field of consciousness mm. without the sense of fundamental separation that's our our ordinary experience. So the whole process that I'm concerned with in my own practice and that has been the basis of my practice is, is really to invoke the foundational power within consciousness such that it will reframe my perceptions. And that process, of course, is called the awakening of Kundalini, which is the activation of this very subtle, let's call it enlightening or evolutionary quality in consciousness that, that is spontaneously and naturally able to shift our awareness so that we can have that experience. So did I leap? Did I cut right to the... Well, there's a lot in there. We could like just yeah, unpack, unpack that for the rest of the interview. <laughs> but, yeah. but let me take a stab at it. Firstly, we're still coming back to this point of is consciousness the most fundamental reality? I don't know about Muktananda, but I know Nityananda was fabled to have you know, been seen levitating, rising up to the top of some building he was in. And as I recall, when I read Play of Consciousness, and there are, of course, numerous other accounts of things like that happening. None that we've been able to verify in our contemporary society, but let's say that were to happen. And that there was right. somebody who could replicate that reliably, and it wasn't David Copperfield or Chris Angel or one of those guys. It seems to me, if they were honest, physicists would really have to scramble to explain how that could be possible. You right. Know, what laws of nature would enable something like that to happen? And, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of more enlightened physicists that you and I have been alluding to would say, well, you know, consciousness is all-pervading and there are certain laws that reside, all laws of nature reside within it, and someone like Nityananda has learned to master those laws such that he, if he wants to rise up and talk to the ceiling or whatever, he can do that. And of course, there are Christian examples of that too. So yeah. that, that's one point. Another point is this, this idea about you know, you were mentioning how, how some physicists get kind of pissed off because new agey types, spiritual types, um, co-opt their, their theories and their, their explanations and as a means of sort of um, supporting their own perspectives and you right. know, saying that consciousness is the same as the unified field and so on. But, right. but I'd, I'd like to throw in the idea that the human nervous system, and I think Kashmir Shaivism has a lot to say about this, is such an amazing instrument far more intricate and capable of, dis of exploring certain realities than any f machinery that, that human beings have been able to create. The Hubble telescope has its capabilities, which our nervous system does not, and maybe the Large Hadron Collider has its, but there's, the human nervous system actually has the, the delicacy of functioning, the refinement of, of it in its structure, to be able to ground one experientially in the the sort of the ground state of creation and, and yeah. unified field, pure consciousness, whatever we want to call it. So it's, it's really the ultimate scientific instrument. It's just a matter of learning how to use it. Yeah, Rick, that's, that's beautifully said. I like the way Ken Wilber formulates that actually, that given that, that there are different levels of reality inside the human nervous system, there are certain realities that we see with the physical eyes. There are certain realities that we can conceive of with the mind and imagination. And there's certain realities that can only be seen by a deeper intuitive awareness. 
which traditionally has been called the eye of the heart. So our nervous system actually does have the capacity to experientially see into the heart of the universe in a way that perhaps no other, certainly nothing we, we make seems to have been able to do. We can't make a house fly, we, you yeah, know? Exactly. I mean, even... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly, exactly. Despite all the interesting claims of the AI people, the artificial intelligence right. people. So far, we haven't been able to make a house fly that... So, <laughs> and so far, we haven't been able to replicate or to create a, a machine or a computer that actually can experience the depths of reality directly. And, you know, who knows, as if, in fact, the evolutionary process of enlightenment does unfold in the way that some people think it will, maybe we will have enough of that awareness ourselves to be able to, to create something that, uh, that can give it to other people mechanically, yeah. but I doubt it. I think it is the miracle of life, of human consciousness, that we seem to be built in such a way that with enough work on ourselves and with enough opening to what's available, we, we actually can recognize ourselves as the wholeness. That's an extraordinary miracle. And I would say more than that, we can recognize ourselves as the wholeness and, and actually embody that awareness inside a normal life, which I would say is, you know, perhaps the holy grail of mm -hmm. spiritual practice how we bring that awareness into our relationships, into our planet, into our world. And some would argue that if properly developed, if our full potential is unfolded, we could actually replicate the kinds of things that the Hubble telescope or the Large Hadron Collider can do. We could actually, in our, with our inner yoga vision, see a distant galaxy or, you know, explore subatomic particles. But putting that aside... Well, but we can, I mean, we can. I know lots of people and I've had a few experiences uh -huh. myself of actually seeing into the body, seeing into my own body, seeing yeah. the blood flowing, seeing what's, having a, a glimpse of what, of the complexity that's going on. That is a capacity that really does develop through deep meditation. Yeah, and Patanjali talks about a lot of that stuff, you know. Being, yeah. But putting that aside, you know, the, they say that the, the Large Hadron Collider uses like half the, the electricity of Geneva or something when it's <laughs> running at full capacity. And, and, and physicists even now understand that there are deeper levels of reality that you would need a machine as big as the universe to actually probe, that, it, that you just couldn't go any deeper in terms of a physical, mm. phys, physical machine that they can conceive of building. But... You know, what we're suggesting is that the human nervous system has the capacity to go deeper without using half the power of Geneva. You know, it just, yeah. it has a, a certain delicacy in its structure, a certain cap yeah. capability in its design, that if we can tap into that and unfold that, will enable us to get right down to the, the real nitty gritty, right down to the foundation of the universe and, and recognize that as what we essentially are. Yeah, and it's one of the, the really wild and experienceable truths that the yoga, that the texts of the Yoga Tantra and that yoga is all about is this recognition that inside the human body, the entire universe, the structures of the universe, the physical structures and also the subtler structures are completely replicated and therefore completely experienceable. And that you do in deep meditation experience places on the planet and places in the universe that are real, that exist outside. You can experience them inside. And more interesting, 
to me, actually, if we're talking about inner sightseeing, inner tourism, is that it is actually possible to see worlds, you know, to see light worlds, subtle worlds, beings who we never would see in the physical universe in the subtle world, you know, the, the world of dream, you know, as it were, the world we enter in dream, but the subtle world that we enter in meditation, as, as you probably know, it's real in a way that dream doesn't appear, you know, that right. just as in dream, images come that can be very strange and interesting and powerful and transformative, as the Jungians tell us. There is another level where we, you know, which we enter in meditation, in which we enter a subtle world where the colors are brighter than they are in the physical world, where wisdom is given to us that's, that's way beyond the wisdom we can read in books. And, you know, it, one of the things that the yogic sages tell us is that real, genuinely innovative knowledge, you know, I believe a lot of the knowledge that has led to the technological innovations that that pop into consciousness at different moments really can be experienced actually as downloaded from these subtle worlds, which, you know, many people, many enlightened sages who have traveled extensively in those realms will tell us are are actually the, the source of the innovative wisdom that comes mm -hmm. through human consciousness and is then manifested in the physical world, almost as though they're blueprints at subtler levels of consciousness that, that are the underlying energies behind our physical experience. Yeah, and not only kind of scientific or, uh, types of discoveries, but I've, I've heard that I think it might have been Mozart who said he would cognize a symphony in just a second and then it would just take a while to write it out but the whole thing yeah. the whole thing would just come in a, as a complete package yeah and i and i often feel like you watch some great movie you know which you feel is just really having an enlightening impact on society and you think whoa where did that come from you know yeah. <laughs> it's like there's really yeah. some kind of divine wisdom that really wanted to come through and get out to the masses yeah yeah and you know a lot of what people like you do is you know, in a certain sense, it's a little bit of a debased word, but channel that, you know, that wisdom. It's, in a certain sense, the more clear one becomes, the more open one is to that coming through. Yeah, you know, one time I was teaching a course for people who were training to become TM teachers, and I, I was finding that, you know, somebody would ask a question, I wouldn't really know the answer, but i just start to say a word or two, and then the whole thing would just come, and I'd be able to answer it. And I asked Marishi about that, and he said, yeah, that's exactly right. He said, that's the way I do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some, some real nice stuff here that we're going to expand on. First of all, this whole idea of subtle worlds. I mean, in a way, we were just sort of jumping from the gross to the transcendent, you know, tables and then unified field. But there's a whole... Uh, <laughs> my wife just passed me a note. Are you letting her talk enough? Yep, I'm letting, <laughs> I'm letting her talk enough. <laughs> we're going back and forth here. It grows to the transcendent. There's a whole range in between, and you yeah. talk. You know, you, we're going to talk about that in this in this interview, and you talk about it in your books. But there, are, there are all sorts of subtle strata, are there not, in which hordes of life re beings reside, yeah. light, light beings and life beings, and that can not only be cognized in meditation, but like m like most things that are experienced in meditation, it can be stabilized and become a, a you know ordinary walking you know waking state experience. Yeah. And so I want to talk a little bit about the ways in which we might experience subtle realms in the waking state, because to me, that's the most interesting aspect of the way the subtle worlds interact with us. 
in Vedanta, as you know, in the yoga tradition, they divide reality in various ways, but essentially there's physical reality, gross reality. Then there's, there's the subtle world reality, which is vast, as you were saying. And then there's what's sometimes called the causal reality, which is where forms kind of start to dissolve into formlessness. Mm. And beyond that is the transcendent realm. So in a certain sense, you could say, as we start to access the subtle realms and the, the causal realms through meditation and through practice, what we start to realize is that we experience them in different ways. I know there are people who experience them very visually. I have actually a number of students who have quite remarkable visual entries into subtle worlds. And my guru traveled extensively and he recorded his travels as did Yogananda Paramahamsa and you know other teachers, you know, some of the teachers who really set the Western world on fire were teachers who had very, very visual experience of these higher subtle worlds and of, you know, deities, beings who live in bodies made of light and have a kind of elemental effect on the physical world. And the the goddesses who, you know, I speak about in my book, Awakening Shakti, which hopefully we'll talk about later. But my experience of the subtle world has always been energetic. It's been a kind of recognition of subtle, very distinct energy fields that become recognizable as you practice, as having different degrees of subtlety and density. So when we talk about, let's say, dark energies or dense vibrations or heavy vibrations, as lots of New Age people do, we are actually talking about genuine energetic fields that are present in this universe. And at the same time, what we begin to be able to be aware of is these very light, very, very powerful, very intelligent, subtle energies that have actually distinct personal energy signatures as distinct as yours is, and that we can begin to recognize that the nature of being alive is to have a particular energetic personality that we actually recognize when we let ourselves tune into it. You know, for example, if there's someone you're really intimate with, like your wife or your mother or your best friend, you actually recognize them by the energetic signature that they, you know, that they manifest. So that if you think about your wife, you experience a certain energy that's very different, I assume, than when you think about your mother or your cat. Because in that sense, we are all energy beings. And the subtle realms, the subtle worlds are full of literally teeming with these energy beings who seem to have a capacity according to the texts. And I've actually noticed it myself in my practice. These energy beings seem to have a capacity to shape shift, you know, in ways that are much more difficult for you and I in our physical bodies. So in other words, they can appear as, as light forms, they can appear and, you know, in these forms that people often see in meditation and paint, you know, as, you know, and we call the forms of gods and goddesses or angels or demonic forces that they take forms that people have recorded that are, let's say, uh, mediated through the imagination, but that we come to realize are not imaginary in the sense of being unreal. So the ways in which the human mind intelligence imagination can interact with subtle worlds, you know, by opening to them, by 
invoking them, by imagining them, by, you know, using mantras or sound forms or or dialogue to, to interact with them has been the stuff of yoga and shamanism and deep religious transformative practice ever since I think human beings came onto the planet because the atmosphere around us literally teems with subtle energies and forces who are, in my experience, very, very willing, very, very almost offering themselves as helpers, as inspirers, you know, and all we really have to do is take them seriously and be willing to invoke them. Yeah, that last point was good because as you were speaking, I was thinking, okay, some people are going to wonder what's the utility of this, you know, and should, yeah. this, should this be something I seek out? And I think, you know, maybe not. For instance, I have a friend who sees subtle beings routinely, you right. know, I don't know whether they're angels or what, and after, shortly after he divulged to me that he had this experience. I was very curious, of course. I said, like, are there any here? Are there any here? Mm -hmm. And we were in an elevator at the San Francisco airport, and I whispered to him, I said, there's a small crowded elevator. I said, are there any in the elevator? And he just kind of smiled. And then he got out and he said, oop, they just said to me, don't point us out to people. If they're meant to see us, they'll see us. Yeah. And, and then he said, there were three. Uh, <laughs> but I think maybe it could be a misalignment of priorities and one can get kind of preoccupied with trying to develop subtle perceptions and see auras totally. and all that and totally. without, without having, Marsh used to use the analogy of capturing the fort which commands the territory. If you capture the fort then you're free to roam about and explore the whole territory but don't get totally. hung up going after this gold mine over here or this diamond mine over there. Capture the fort first. Yes, right on. And here's what I would say about it. Again, in my experience, it's very important in capturing the fort, as Maharishi beautifully calls it, to actually have, you, you can't do it with human effort. Right. In other words, human effort will only take you so far. And you need empowerment, you need grace, you need help. So this is really the utility of understanding and recognizing subtle beings. You know that even the, most of us who've had some experience in spiritual life understand that certain teachers have the capacity to empower you spiritually. You know, you were with such a teacher, I was with such a teacher. So we, you know, we understand that, that they're human beings who can be of profound help, not just as teachers of skills, but also of, you know, being able to transmit to us uh, an understanding or an awareness or a state. So uh, I think that it's also important to understand that there are beings in the energy field, in the cosmos, whose, let's call it job, whose gift is to be able to empower our spiritual awareness. And the usefulness, I would say, of being able to invoke subtle energies is for the purpose of help in the process of enlightenment. And of course, again, it's not a new idea. It's been the basis of mystical practice for, I would say, since the beginning. But we don't break through the veils without some sort of recognition of the, the need for, for this kind of subtle help. What's sometimes called grace or in the, in the tantric tradition, there's a kind of a basic understanding about the powers of consciousness, you know, that consciousness, this, this subtle force that we've been talking about, is constantly creating forms, const maintaining them for a while and then dissolving them. I mean, that's, that's the nature of 
life energy. It's, it brings things into being. It, you know, it keeps them in stasis as a table, and then the table will eventually, one way or another, dissolve and decay. And of course, that's happening in our, on the cellular level. It's happening constantly in the mind. But what Tantra says is that there are two other cosmic processes which are always at play. And one of them is, you were mentioning earlier, the concealment process where the, the unity behind everything is just simply veiled by our nervous system, by whatever forces in reality are bent on concealing these subtle beings that don't want to be pointed out by your friend or you know, our fundamental oneness with each other. And there is another force in the universe, which is in Sanskrit, it's called anugraha, which literally means that which grabs the individual and shows it, reveals reality to it, which in, you know, in English we call that grace. And the whole tantric project is based on the understanding you absolutely cannot take one foot into subtle awareness unless consciousness gives you you know, that grace unless consciousness, in fact, seizes your individual consciousness and starts to open the veils for you. So asking for the help of those energies which can awaken us is uh, it's a tremendously powerful practice, which combined with your own, your own work, your own meditative and psychological effort is, um, is what's going to make that awakening possible. So I think you said in your book, uh... We were talk, you were talking about the veiling of our fundamental oneness, and you're, yeah. you're talking about Shakti as Mahamaya, and you said that, which would mean great illusion, but, uh, but Shakti created the illusion, and she has right. to free us from it. Yeah. It's interesting. It seems to me that in my, my way of understanding, and which is, of course, subject to revision, there had to be a veiling in order for there to be a universe. Even if we take the traditional cosmological understanding of how the universe evolved, for the first few billion years at least, there couldn't have been any beings that were at least gross biological beings that were evolved enough, sophisticated enough in their functioning to have a conversation like this or to right. talk, talk about, you know, transcending and experiencing the source of, of creation or anything like that. And first, first stars had to form and then stars had to explode and that had to go, happen quite a few times before there were enough heavy elements to form worlds and have beings on them and it all took billions of years. You know, sometimes people say, well, the universe doesn't exist unless someone's perceiving it, and that things just come into existence as they are perceived. But I never understood that because it seemed to me that, you know, the universe was evolving for several billion years before there could have been anyone to perceive it. And then eventually life began to form and began to evolve and got to the point where, you know, we could have yogis, we could have conversations like this, people seeking right. to know and understand and experience the ultimate reality. Of course, the view of yoga is that the universe is inherently sentient, so that there was always there has there is always a perceiver. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. there's not necessarily a human perceiver. Not but, necessarily a human perceiver, right. but there's but consciousness is conscious sentient. So, so that sentiency is all. I mean, it, it, this is not a scientific uh, <laughs> view of it, but it's the view I think that makes sense of that in a certain sense. You know yeah. that. If you really do believe that the perceiver creates what is perceived, then you have to assume that there's a perceiver who is present at the creation, as it were. Yeah. Um, and, and as you were saying, all these subtle beings who have jobs, and those jobs have to do with creation. Yeah, and, and exactly. We and can, we can talk more about that. And, you know, and if there's a star, then that star is a, 
there's a, a consciousness associated with that star. You know, in, yeah. uh, we, you know, the Indian tradition calls our sun Surya, and that is, it's meant to imply some great being or, or that re resides in the the body of that star. And yeah. you know, Westerners talk about Gaia, you know, with regard to the Earth. Yeah. So the idea that everything in the universe actually has a soul, as it were, you know, has a has a presence, has a has an aware consciousness. And of course, the Indian tradition is so unbelievably skilled at mapping these and pointing out to us why planets have an effect on our mm -hmm. on our psychological consciousness and what that you know what that all has to do with. I mean, there are just certain things that are not explained that cannot be explained in physical with physical science. And although I I am totally fascinated by the ways in which physical science explains reality. You know, and enhances our understanding of reality and explodes myths about how things came into being. I don't feel that, you know, that one of the really fascinating things to me about the current excitement in the cosmological world about, you know, how they've, they actually have been able to, to see with their telescopes the moment when this, you know, infinitesimal seed arose out of the Big Bang and then expanded from that creating space as it expanded, you know, that they've proved that the universe is expanding. Yeah, um, I don't think they visually see that, but they get, with the radio telescope, they get the sort of background noise of the Big Bang, you know. Right, and, uh, right. They can also tell due to um, blue shift, you know, the Doppler effect, that all the galaxies are moving apart from each other, so like pennies on a balloon that's being inflated. So they do see that expansion, yeah. Did you read the, the pieces in the Times yet earlier this year Apparently, through I think mathematical formulations coming from from those telescopes, uh -huh. they they actually were able to pinpoint the moment when the universe kind of exploded out of whatever yeah. it came out of, you know, and into and and Vishnu's navel, no doubt. Yeah, Vishnu's navel, exactly. <laughs> the great Mahashunya, the great point, and and that it was in fact tiny. It then expanded. And the thing I love is what they say is that it created space to occupy. That was a recognition of physics, of cosmology, and I'm not familiar enough with the science to be able to tell you what it was, but there are about three articles in the New York Times about it because it was so exciting. It was apparently something they'd been working on for years of understanding what actually happened after the Big Bang. There was a story on NPR about when this first became publicized a graduate student of one of the original scientists of this theory knocked on his door at three in the morning with a bottle of champagne, woke him up, and <laughs> they danced and toasted each other. So it was a big deal. Yeah. I wish I could remember the proportions that they describe, but it's worth looking at. Well, that's, yeah. And what yeah. you said a minute ago was really cool, too. Did you watch Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos series by any chance? That, I didn't, uh, but I've heard it's really interesting. Uh, it's wonderful. But, you know, one thing, it illustrates something you just said, which is that Science has served a very useful function in dispelling a lot of goofy notions that people have come up with about how the universe works and, right. and you know, and insisting that those are true because of their interpretation of some book that was written a couple thousand years ago and, you know, torturing and killing people who disagreed with them and so on. So, you know, yes. very, very, I think Carl Sagan said that if it hadn't been for the, the Inquisition in the Middle Ages that we, you know, we would have landed on the moon a thousand years sooner or something. In any case, there are a lot of scientists who are, who are atheists, but still science has, has played such a valuable role in 
enculturing us in the habit of systematic thinking and, totally. and insisting yeah. on experience. This is one thing yeah. I like about Sam Harris. He says that so much harm has come from believing in things that we can't actually experience. Totally. You know, totally. So, so experience is the crux of it. Experience is the crux of it. And the thing is that you have to have a system for making the experiment. And the scientific systems are, you know, profoundly instructive in that way. And at the same time, you know, the, the systems that have arised from experimenting inside the human laboratory also have an awful lot to teach us and not about belief, but about Experience. what the possibilities are. Yeah, as you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the human mind, into the human, the, you know, the human field of experience. Yeah, you talk about these in your book, Doorways to the Infinite. Yeah. I mean, you took one particular yeah. text as a, it's a, it's a, a good case in point. But, you know, there's so many texts like that in ancient traditions that say, if you, yeah. if you do this, you'll experience this. Yes. And, you know, and that kind of meets at least some of the criterion of the scientific method. It's, it's repeatable. Anybody, exactly. can, anybody can try the experiment. Exactly. exactly. And, and it, it's repeatable. It takes seriousness. You know, mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not like you push a button and you get the experience. You actually have to, you have to do the work. You know, you... Yeah. you you have to go to high school and graduate school in, in inner experience. But if you do it, it's there. It's there to be revealed. It kind of blows my mind because I have been at this for a long time and I'm not particularly gifted, uh, spiritually gifted. I you know, consider myself you know, quite a slow learner in this respect. All of the experience I have had of the truth of what these sages have told us has really come about through years and years of practice and it's always been a surprise. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, that actually uh, thought is, you know, I, I'm just gonna give you a, a very simple example. You know, thought is constantly being produced in an endless cycle and it's always going to go on and I don't, if I don't identify myself as the thinker, it, the thoughts can be going on and I can move deeper and deeper and deeper into a a world of vastness and calm where, you know, it's as though I'm floating in a sky of awareness that includes all that is. Oh my God, that's actually, and I'm completely conscious and sentient and in my body and not hallucinating. It's, it's a natural development. We really do have, you know, just as I can't understand physics except in a very bare bones way because I haven't done, haven't done my homework. I haven't, I haven't studied it in the same way to really get what the human being is on what we call the spiritual level. We need to go there. We need to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, important and, point. And it's not enough to just read a few books and get it, not and get an intuitional sort of sense no. of what Ramana Maharshi was talking about and, and jump to the conclusion that you've got it, you know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like instant awakenings disappear instantly. And, and some people don't like that notion. They, they feel it's a sort of you're chasing an endless carrot on a stick. You know, if you, if you're, you know, if you're kind of, if you have this orientation that there's always going to be more and that, you, you know, you haven't reached any kind of final realization, why don't you just accept, you know, who was it? Sailor Bob Adamson said, you know, what's wrong with right now unless you think about it. Beautiful, yes. Well, but, exactly. But, there's nothing wrong with right now. It's, you know, but, it's, but there's a but, because the, the average person's right now, even the average spiritual person's right now, is not necessarily the ultimate realization that that person could have. 
Yeah, and and uh, I guess from my own experience, right now can be opaque, or it can have the taste of eternity. And when you've managed to sort of open the now to the real experiential recognition of its eternality, then your experience walking around is going to be completely different than if your your now is opaque. And the thing I love about the contemporary spiritual world is that we're given so many modalities. We're given so many ways to make our daily life experience deeper and more enjoyable and more subtle. But it also makes it very easy to just stay with that, to stay with an initial experience of peace or sweetness or fullness because life is so full and is so distracting and we have so many agendas. So, you know, I think now as always, there's many, many ways we can take the journey. And if you if you decide that this is what life is about, you know, that that what you really want in life is to know as much of the reality of human embodiment as you know, as is possible on the subtlest level, then it's going to take you a while and it's going to be, but it's totally engaging and fascinating. And, yeah. and, and I don't think you have to be so goal oriented. I think it's more a matter of allowing yourself to be drawn through the journey. It's kind of a balance, I think. I mean, if you look back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years on your own life and what you were experiencing at those various stages, I reckon you would say that there has been a pretty significant, I mean, if you could jump instantly from, you know, now to 10 years ago, 10 years ago to 20, you, you'd, yeah. ex you'd experience pretty shocking contrasts. <laughs> but, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, on the one hand, there has been this and, and will continue to be this continual progression which you right. know, implies journey, there's some, you're going somewhere. Right. Uh, right. But on the other hand, you know, there's always contentment in the present moment, at least a certain degree of it. And if you, if you pass over that, if you ignore that for the sake of you know, pining for something you might be experiencing 20 years from now, then you miss out on, on life now. Yeah. I think that these two attitudes that you're alluding to are actually correctives for each other, right? You know, that, that I know when a lot of people in our generation came into the spiritual world with the idea that we were going to get high, we were going to get enlightened, and it was going to be blissful. And and then, of course, we discovered that it, it's not quite like that, that it, it is actually a journey, that there are dark spots, dark nights, and that, that the dark nights are as important as the light spots. And then it seems to me there was this kind of recognition in the students our age who then became teachers and they all started saying, well, you know, enlightenment, what's that about? That's just a kind of a myth. Let's talk about spiritual maturity, you know, where we're, we're able to really be in the moment and be with our pain and, um, and, you know, life is good enough and let's do our family thing and our work thing and get it together. And I always felt it was a corrective to that, you know, kind of naive running after experience that a lot of us started out with. And what I've noticed is that it goes in cycles. So right now, I think, is one of those cycles when people are really interested in what we might call flashy spiritual experience, mm. almost as a corrective to the more mundane, what's wrong with now attitude that was prevalent, or the idea that so many of the teachers of what we call direct path spirituality will say, well, you know, just realize it's all already happened, you're already awake, everything is perfect, just relax and let everything be as it is. And I love that teaching, you know, it's incredibly sweet and empowering and relaxing teaching. 
and there's more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the infomercial, but wait, there's exactly. more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's very salutary to go, okay, there's nothing to strive for. I am already that. You know, let me just be present and can I let it be all right that my stomach hurts? Let's deeply accept who we are in this moment. It's great. But somehow, by truly accepting where we are in this moment, we can't let ourselves get stuck, complacent, and believe that's all our life is about. So I think that to really consider metaphysics and to to consider what the great beings have experienced and to realize that this is within our capacity as well is hugely important. Yeah, I think there's it is too, yeah. There's something to go into even as we grow up, you know, even as we become kinder and more accepting and more loving and have better relationships and better become better stewards of the planet, you know, and have a more caring global world-centric view, at the same time, we can go deeper and go into the, the subtle elements of the universe. I think it's all necessary and, all, and, yeah. and complementary. To my mind, the, the whole enlightenment game is, it's, it's never only this or only that. You know, it's, it's all inclusive and you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, yeah, you have to get it together on, and, and definitely there have been times in my life where I have not had it together in the least on the relative level or, you know, needed all kinds of integration in this area and that area. Personally, I, I've never lost sight of the fact that there is something, you know, on a distant horizon that is grand and that is marvelous and that is worth pursuing and striving for, which is, again, not to deny the necessity of dealing with and living in the present and, and living that as fully and responsibly as possible. It, it just doesn't have to be an either-or situation. You yeah. Know? It's, yeah. It's, it's all, it's both and, it's the whole package. Totally, and I actually think spiritual maturity is the recognition of the paradox. I have a you know, t-shirt on today that said paradox in it. I changed it for right. this interview. But <laughs> <laughs> Continue. Yeah, well, well, just that, that, you know, the recognition that it's all, all, it's all here and yet there's there is more, and the recognition that that we are, as the New Age cliche has it, we are spiritual beings having a human experience, and we're also human beings having a spiritual experience. You know, it's it's all of it. And I do think that, you know, Scott Fitzgerald said that the sign of true intelligence is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas at the same time, and I think that's very true. That while drinking a martini. While drinking a martini, right. <laughs> <laughs> while drinking a martini and ruining his life. But, <laughs> but obviously in some way, oh, it's, look at that little being over there. Yeah, you got little Just beings. came into the room. Yeah, you've got some. Feline, oh, my, my is, little is beings. A, oh, it's yeah, a dog, yes. It's a dog, yeah. Whenever you see me open my door, it's, I'm letting a oh, dog, to let the dog dogs in, in yeah. and out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were seeing angels or something. No, no, no. I was, <laughs> I was seeing what looks like a pug or... Blue healer mix. Blue, oh, okay. Yeah. One of those esoteric small dogs. Yeah. Earlier on, half an hour ago or so, we were talking about all these levels of creation, the gross and the subtle and the transcendent. And, and I think there's a tendency to try to kind of glom on to one or another to the exclusion right. to the exclusion of the other. So I've really got to get my act together on the, in the relative here and become an integrated person, improve my relationships, get a job, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But that need not exclude also enlivening, diving into the transcendent and enlivening that. You can kind of juggle all the balls at the same time. And in fact, 
if you do that, you actually become more successful in any, you know, at any point in those in those different strata than yeah. than you are if you ex focus on one or another exclusively. Yeah, true, true. And and I would also say that we are gifted in certain areas of life, naturally, most of us, and not so gifted in others. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just as when you go to school, you you might have to work harder in geometry than you do in English, at least in my case, uh, or, the, or vice versa. Uh, I think in life, that's also true. So, you know, there are people who are very talented spiritually, very motivated spiritually, and really not so good in the relative. And often for those people, a lot of spiritual practice is about getting it together psychologically and getting life together. Mm -hmm. And then vice versa. So I think we're always balancing, aren't we? We're always mm -hmm. trying to carry those. And we're always, we're trying to, to really get our priorities balanced. And it's, it's a constant practice of error correction. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not, yeah. Let's get back into some of the stuff you talked about in your books. We've dwelt a bit on this idea that Shakti created the illusion and she has to free us from it. And you were talking about grace. Anugraha, was it? Anugraha, yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting thing in and of itself that some spiritual teachers say don't do practices because you're making individual effort. Individual effort only concretizes the individuality. You know, it, it, it makes the ego even more bound. But I think there's, a, there's an art to doing, yeah. to doing practice, which you can elaborate on which is, there's a phrase in the Vedas someplace which says, be easy to us with gentle effort. Yeah. So there's kind of a balancing point between effort and total, you know, blah. Yeah, <laughs> which, yeah. Uh, which is, bears fruit. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a famous saying, effort and grace are two wings of the bird. Hmm. You know, you have to flap them both. Yeah. So one of them you're flapping, the other one is, I guess, being flapped for you. The teaching that you shouldn't make individual effort is a very good corrective for the striving spiritual personality who's always looking for it, looking for it, looking for it. On the other hand, if you don't make effort... Yeah, and you <laughs> know, some, peop some people like Adyashanti, for instance, had big breakthroughs after years of making effort and then just sort of saying, screw yeah. it, I'm, I'm just going to relax, and then boom, something happened. Yeah, and, and I find in, in meditation practice that for years that would be my experience. Mm -hmm. I would be sitting there trying to concentrate, in sitting in a good posture, and, you know, and then after an hour I would, it would be the end of the meditation, and I would relax my posture and I'd just sit there, and that would be when the opening would occur. Yeah. So one of the things that I discovered is that, you know, as these teachers say, if you can relax in the beginning, you know, if you can learn how to make a, I call it soft focus, you know, mm -hmm. where you're, you're kind of intending your practice. And I have, a very, I have a very specific concentrative practice that I always start meditation with because it's the way I've know, I know I can collect my mind from its various, you know, distractions and worldly pursuits and sort of make it one-pointed. But the real depth in meditation happens when that concentrative practice kind of lets go. Mm. You know, it's... So I think that everyone who meditates discovers that, you know, you tighten the focus and then you let it go. And then that, and that's when, you know, you, you actually let yourself, one word is drift, but, or sink, or, yeah. you know, expand. Did and, Muktananda advocate concentration? 
he advocated both. You know, he, uh -huh. yes, he advocated concentration, but he essentially taught med meditation as a spontaneous process that mm -hmm. catches you. So, so everything that you do, all the effort that you make, is actually to align you so that you can be caught by the meditation current, as I call it, the, yeah. so that you can enter the bandwidth. So, in other words, I think as you know, we were both trained in the same type of tradition. If you understand that meditation, meditation is a, I call it a bandwidth, it's, it's a dimension of consciousness, and the practices are doors. So, for instance, in the Vignana Bhairava, the Vignana Bhairava practices that Doorways to the Infinite is about, uh, that text gives 108 very, often very surprising doorways. Yeah. You know, one of which is remembering a moment of love and then letting yourself just enter into the love aspect of consciousness through that doorway. Or one of my favorites is um, meditating in the void in the armpits. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you actually, you let your arms get a little bit loose and you mm -hmm. bring your awareness into the space in the armpits. You close your eyes and you realize that there is actually this empty space in the armpits which can be a doorway into open spaciousness. So, and I love that idea that any concentration technique you do, it's like, it's like standing at the portal into, the, into what's behind it. Yeah, I found that some of those things that you said in the, the, those verses in the Vigyana Bhairava were things I was actually doing without knowing that they were techniques or anything. It's like, oh, yeah, I do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because, you know, Rick, consciousness will teach you what is the best doorway for you at any given moment to mm. go into the deeper self. It's, and it's, I think that texts like that were kind of discovered or, you know, or seen in meditation, that this, this insight, oh, let me imagine my head as the sky, which of course is very popular practice in Dzogchen Buddhism and is in the Vignana Bhairava. And it's also, you know, it's also an experience that happens spontaneously sometimes. Yeah. You know, and people write them down and teach them to their disciples, and they become techniques. And, uh, and then we get to explore them, but they're all just about opening the door uh, or inviting the door to open. I have a technique. Try this the next time you're at a swimming pool. Go to the deep end of the swimming pool, presuming you know how to swim, and <laughs> hold your nose and bend from the waist and just keep bending until you just fall into the water head first and let yourself just somersault slowly underwater like that holding your nose mm -hmm. and with your eyes closed whenever i do that it's like kind of instant unbounded bliss mm. it's like kind of all loss of spatial orientation and awareness just goes zoom like that mm. and then i can't do it again at least not for immediately somehow it, it's had its effect but uh that's the the Rick that's Archer Bhairava, just try it next time you're at that's, the... <laughs> that's beautiful, that's beautiful. And, you know, it happens in the ocean, like when you let yourself dive into, a, you know, when there's a big wave and you dive into the center yeah. of the wave, and the wave kind of grabs you. Yeah, and you just sort yeah. of, yeah, it's, it's yeah. like your awareness kind of expands. It's, just, it's the most interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. And leading us to the conclusion that there's no experience in the world that can't be a doorway into open mm -hmm. awareness if you if you can just enter it. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed a guy um, a couple of years ago named um, Takuin Minamoto, and he is he was crossing a parking lot in Boston, and all of a sudden the car came screeching and almost hit him, you know, but came screeching to a halt, and the shock of that kicked him into a state of realization, and he never yeah. lost it. Wow. Yeah. Well, 
<laughs> and he wasn't even like some kind of ardent spiritual practitioner or anything. It was just like this totally, he had to like figure out later on what it was he was living in because he wasn't really familiar with all the terminology of realization and awakening and all. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like Tony Parsons who tells us that he was just walking across Green Park in London. And, although I think Tony Parsons... He had already done a bunch of practice. He had already done a lot of practice. Yeah. Like, yeah, or Suzanne, what's her name? Seagull. Who, Seagull, yeah. yeah, who'd also done it. Who'd also done it. Yeah, she was a yeah. TM person and done a lot of long meditation courses and all. Yeah. Collision yeah. with the Infinite we're alluding to for people not familiar with that. Very interesting book. Very interesting book. Hard to get um, these days. Yeah. Now, you know, you're talking earlier about needing the grace of something in order to get out of the gross into the subtle. Often a mantra is used for that, obviously. And yeah. mantras, most mantras that you and I would be familiar with, contain, they're called bija sounds, which are said to represent or embody the, uh, some god or other, some impulse of intelligence. And that using the mantra in a certain way, maybe you, you take it from here, explain the mechanics of how using a mantra in a particular way would elicit some kind of transcendental experience because of the intelligence behind the sound of that mantra. The deepest recognition of that is in the tantras and, and it is that everything in this universe arises out of vibration. So vibration, sound is inherently creative and these, you know, these seed syllables, these bija mantras that we use in meditation are considered to be the the fundamental sound form of a particular energy. So in the Indian tradition, in the Vedic tradition, the priests who would traditionally create, they would make the fire leap out of wood by reciting the Bij Mantra for fire, which is a drum, which um, supposedly, if you're really adept at it, you can kindle fire just by reciting the syllable. I know guys who claim they can do that. I've never actually seen it. Somehow or other, Christ did the loaves and fishes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and the Baal Shem Tov, the great Hasidic master, he actually taught the word as the, you know, the center of manifestation of changing reality. Uh, and there are a lot of stories. He was actually, his name means the master of the name. So this science of using sound to transform reality is really embedded in most of the mystical traditions, very strong in Jewish, Jewish mysticism, actually. But um, in deity practice, the mantras that, you know, the seed mantras that you're talking about, which I will say out loud in my bad Sanskrit, you know, like Aim, which is the mantra that, that uh, it holds the energy of divine creativity or the goddess Saraswati, who is the goddess of speech and eloquence and creativity, or, or the mantra Hrim, which is said to hold the full creative power of the goddess in all of her forms, that in tantric tradition, these mantras completely incarnate the full energy of this, this sacred energy, this sacred force. And therefore, when you really let that mantra that cook inside you, it's going to open you up to that energy in a very natural way, you, you know, just kind of by itself, just by letting it sink into your consciousness, which is, I know, the way TM meditation is done. You, you work with a seed mantra and you yeah. just let it. It's effortless and it follows, it uses what Marsh used to call the natural tendency of the mind to seek a field of greater happiness. And, right. you know, these deeper levels are inherently more charming. And so if, if left, if you, it's like diving, take a correct angle, let go, and yeah, the rest is automatic, yeah. Yeah, and it's true. 
mantra practice for that reason is um, unbelievably effective. And especially when you know the moment to let go of the mantra and to let the energy that that is opened up in you take over. I well, think that if you're not making an effort to think it in the first place, then it lets go of its own accord as it becomes right. more subtle. It just kind of fades and disappears and there you are. Right. Right. Unless you try to grab it. <laughs> yeah, which yeah, which so, would, which it would actually be counterindicated yeah. at least in TM. Yeah. 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 And I've noticed though that one of the art the art of meditation is really learning not to grab. Right. You know, not to grab an experience, not to grab a thought, not to grab hold of the technique, um, but to actually let yourself just continue to be carried. And you're right. That, yeah, because if you're that, grabbing, you're interjecting more physical, you're interjecting individual effort, which is only going to get right. in the way. Right, right. It's like, you know, we could think of nature as an invincible source or invincible power. And uh, it's like you're riding on an airplane. And you think, I'm going to help this airplane by walking down the aisle and, you know, getting a little, uh, going a little faster. You know, but you're actually not going to get you to your destination faster. You might interfere with the flight attendants or something. Yeah, and how about this one? When you think, which I did when I, I went through a period when I would get on a plane and I would feel that my, that I had to concentrate intensely to keep the plane in the air. Because, <laughs> you know, that was how I, that was how I took... I, Pulling I, up on your seat arms. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it was a way of maintaining control because I was afraid of flying. And yeah. the interesting thing was about that is that at one point I started flying on a lot of small planes mm. and I would sit in the cockpit with the pilot and I would, you know, viscerally experience the, the, how thermodynamics and the motor and the pilot skill get the plane into the air and keep it there. So I no longer felt like I had to, I had to keep the plane in the air. And I think that that's, that's true when you, you know, as you allow yourself to fall into meditation to, as meditation sort of rises up to take you, mm -hmm. then you, you have the confidence that you don't have to keep grabbing uh, to make something happen. You can just let what happens happens. And, and that, that experience that we call surrender which we so misunderstand begins to happen spontaneously. Yeah. And if the Bija Mantra, again, is some kind of name of God, the terminology is so clunky. If it represents a fundamental primordial impulse of intelligence, which arises from the unified field, from the ground state, from the transcendent, then, you know, that sound kind of has its roots there and can be used as a vehicle to take you all the way down. Yeah, you ride it. You yeah. ride it back to the source. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also true that mantras have to be empowered. And here, here again, you know, we come back to touching into the source. What is the power source for spiritual experience? You know, mantra is a vehicle through which an empowerment occurs, but the empowerment actually comes from someplace much subtler. And this is, this is actually what got me really fascinated with the tantric view of goddesses. Goddesses as personifications or vortexes of these natural forces in the universe, which, which appear in nature, in weather, in, in our bodies, in our personalities, and which also have a liberating or enlightening quality to them, aspect to them. Because I found that as you begin to become aware of the forces behind mantras, you know, for instance, if you're practicing a mantra, let's say you're practicing the mantra Aim for the sake of 
argument. And you begin to become aware that along with whatever natural subtle experiences you may be having that you don't have any words for or any particular way of understanding, that if you can recognize that inside that mantra there is a very specific, empowering, enlightening, creative force, that it adds an element to your practice. It adds a devotional element to your practice. It adds a love quality to your practice, which is immensely satisfying. You know, so it sort of takes it out of the, the kind of scientific, psychological, mechanical, mechanical quality and makes you just open up to, to relationship and love and, yeah. and a kind of juicy dance with subtle forces. And I'd say so that it, if you don't recognize it initially, you'll recognize it eventually because will, the, yes. the fruits of it will begin to appear in your life and you'll wonder, you know, where are these blessings coming from? Totally, totally. You know, and again, in my experience of the goddesses, I think I started working with them, practicing with them. I have been practicing for 25 or 30 years. They reveal themselves, as it were. You know, they began becoming apparent. And I always believe that we can start by recognizing the possibilities of deity, or we can wait until deity reveals herself and both work. But if we can start by recognizing the possibility, it just, it kind of allows a, it allows a kind of juiciness and devotional quality in our practice that's very delightful right from the beginning. And this sounds strange, but for me, recognizing deity has really allowed me to recognize my own independence from, let's say, other human teachers and writings and texts, because as you start to connect yourself to these subtle deity forces, you really begin to recognize how they're teaching you from inside and the difference between, let's call it, you know, an enlightened download from a higher level of consciousness and the downloads that are arising in your own mind. You know, in other words, there's a lot of stuff that comes up in the mind when we go inside that may or may not be reliable, often really isn't. But when you tune into one of these subtle deity forces and really tune in and really begin to discern, then it actually helps you recognize the difference between your own higher intelligence speaking to you and through you and the stuff that you're making up. <laughs> and it's, it's astonishing to me how much stuff spiritual teachers actually make up, you know, or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, several interesting points in that. I mean, a practical example of what you just said was like when I first conceived of this show, I thought of it as something I would do on the little local radio station here in town, which has like a 10 mile radius. And I was getting all this resistance to the idea from the radio people. I thought this is such a perfect fit for Fairfield. Everybody will love this. Why, why can't I do this? You know, and, and finally kind of got, got it through my thick skull that I should go out to a larger audience. My friends were telling yeah. me, that. but you know, looking back on it, I feel like there's been a lot of grace, a lot of divine guidance with this whole thing and all sorts of opportunities and support and, and guidance to do it in such a way that it's really having some kind of valuable impact for large, yeah. large numbers of people. Whereas yeah. in my little mind, I was thinking, oh yeah, local, local thing here in Fairfield. So, you know, some people might just say, well, that's silly. That doesn't mean that there's any kind of deity involved or anything, but I don't know. I, I sort of feel like there's deity involved in, and we'll have to, we need, we just, we owe it to our listeners to define more carefully what, what we mean by these terms, but I, I feel like there's that involved in the fall of every leaf and the, you yeah. know, the, the 
crash of every wave, they're, they're, the divine is, is operative in uh, everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What to say of human endeavors. <clears throat> you know? Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, the thing about, about recognizing and actually learning to discern when divine forces are trying to get something through to you, which takes a while because we are thick and, and because the ego uh, is naturally limiting, even when the ego is grandiose, it's limiting. So it does really require um, stepping outside your, your egoic personal agendas at some point to really be able to receive deity. You know, it's, it's not something that, it's not an energy that can be manipulated or used, even though human beings are, you know, constantly trying to get God to favor their football team. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it actually requires, as, as you know, a very deep surrender to higher intelligence to start to recognize when you're being, really being guided from the center of the universe. Good point. And, and there can be such a strong individual desire to have it a particular way, but, the, yeah. but, but there's this kind of quieter sense of, no, despite this strong individual desire, there's a deep sense that it should go that way, and I'm going to go with that. Yeah, and sometimes it actually means that you give up thinking about how you're going to do it yeah. and let it, let it happen. You know, much as you were saying about meditation, just letting the vehicle take you deeper. It's a very radical way to live and scary until you, you actually learn, learn that there's something holding you. This is why I do think that a personal relationship with the deity forces. And when I use the word deity, I'm talking about specific, very specific vortexes of, of sacred energy that are, have been personified over the years, over the centuries, in particular forms that as we begin to tune into the, to the energetic substratum of the deeper mind, we start to realize that, that they are present in the cosmos, present in the air. And as you said, every wave, every blink of, of the eyes, every activity of the body, if you look at from a certain point of view, is actually being orchestrated by this divine intelligence, this underlying intelligence. And yet, you know, rather than being one, just as Rick has certain actions and attitudes that you perform as an individual vortex of energy and I have certain attitudes and actions that I embody and perform. In the same way, on the subtler level, there are many, many different energies which act in our bodies and in our lives and in the world itself. So, you know, one of my favorite teachers who's a very passionate colleague, who's a very passionate teacher of deity energy, is Andrew Harvey, who, mm. who talks a lot about the forces that are you know, really rampaging through the world today, which anyone who's very deeply embedded in, in Indian culture will recognize as the forces of the goddess Kali, you know, the goddess whose cosmic action is the destruction of structures in order for something utterly new and different to be born. And, you know, you, you can look around the world and see all the terrible things that are happening all over the world and the destruction of the planet and so much that's horrific and see it as in a lot of individual horrific happenings or you can you can recognize it as the action of the goddess Kali who's waking us up by you know by showing us the incredible destruction that the human ego is capable of performing in you know against other human beings and against the earth so that 
it's almost as though this energy gets gets set loose in the world and she begins to dance and you think this is as bad as it gets no no it can get this bad it can get even this bad until the moment when you you're actually able to look into the face of that aspect of reality and say okay what is it that i need to learn you know what is it that that i need to let go of you know that's a very very deep radical goddess message that most of us would prefer to avoid <laughs> there are many ways you know your experience of of realizing that your work your creative work your radio show could actually needed to be manifested on a wider more inclusive level you know it's an example of what we could call the obviously benign forces of the cosmos giving you a message giving you a teaching but the message is always make your effort in alignment with this truth what is your role to play in what is actually the movement of a of a much larger cosmic force which we hope is the awakening of more and more human beings so if we acknowledge as i think we haven't totally nailed it down to the as best we possibly can that that you know we we're swimming in an ocean of intelligence that every every bit of creation is contained within this vast ocean of intelligence and is conducted and orchestrated by that, then I think a lot of people would find it hard to, I mean, well, a lot of people reject the notion of God because they say, how could God allow the Holocaust, you know? Right. Uh, and many other examples of things that happen. But what you're saying is that everything, all the world wars, the plagues, the you know, all the, the terrible things that have happened, as well as all the wonderful things that have happened, are can, are just sort of the dynamics with, within this this vast intelligence. And just to throw in one quick point, and I'll give it back to you, it seems to me if we're going to have a relative creation, then if we're going to have hot, we have to have cold. If we're going to have fast, yeah. we have to have slow. If we're going to have big, we have to have small. Otherwise, if, if you try to just have one side of the polarity, the whole thing wouldn't work. It would be lopsided. So if there's yeah. going to be happiness, there has to be suffering. If there's going to be help, there has to be sickness. And everything has its, its mirror opposite. But, you know, I think maybe some people would have a hard time accepting that ISIS beheading people and the Ebola virus and some of these things that are really hot items in the news today are really teaching anybody anything. How is it that those are fostering a more enlightened world? Well, I have a hard time accepting ISIS beheading people myself. And I would say that the way that I find this understandable and explainable is that, first of all, there's the overall non-dual recognition that there is really nothing that's outside of consciousness. There's nothing right. that's, that's not imbued with divine consciousness. And to, to recognize this, you really do have to see that divine consciousness is, let's say, neutral. You know, it contains it all. It contains the light and the dark. Now, on the level of relative reality, you know, which is where we're obviously operating, I find that understanding of structures of consciousness, levels of consciousness, the fact that, that human beings and societies grow from childhood to adolescence to some degree of maturity, you know, that there is such a thing as cultural evolution helps to explain some of this. So when you have people who are at a tribal level of culture, who are uh, deeply oppressed in their societies and have no, have no way to find meaning in their lives and their level of consciousness is at a 
let's call it a childhood or adolescent stage of development, then what you're going to have is, you know, violence, terrorism, you know, the attempt of the strong to oppress the weak, because that's how five-year-olds are, you know, yeah. that's how 10-year-olds are. They're bullies on the playground. Bullies on the playground, bullies <laughs> and victims, you know, and, it's, and as we grow older and as we get civilized, when we make rules and we realize that, that what we do to others comes back to us and, you know, we, we grow up. So we are in a place in the world now where there are some very highly evolved beings um, on this planet, and there are some people who at, who seem to be at fairly primitive levels of consciousness, and it's tremendously and and because of communi- you know because we were able to see it all, we know what's going on. We have these this amazing media presence that lets us lets us go into the village and you know and watch watch what's happening, we're somehow being forced to, to consider how to deal with it. I don't think we're dealing with it all that intelligently. But, you know, that's the crisis that we face today is how do we grow up human beings on the planet quickly enough to save us? You know, it's, it's a real dilemma. It's a serious crisis on every level. Yeah. And any, so, anybody who thinks it's easy to solve on, on a superficial level, you know, with this policy or that policy, try being president for a year, know. you know, they say it's like drinking from a fire hose, there's so much coming at you, and yeah. uh, it's easy to criticize. I, yeah. Personally, I think that the kind of stuff we're talking about is far more fundamentally influential than, I mean, things need to be done on, on technological and political yeah. and economic levels, but if we can affect deep, deep and profound shifts in the collective consciousness through our own awakening and through the awakening of others, then that's probably have far more impact th- than just tinkering with, with the surface mechanisms. I, I believe so. My life is based on that premise. Yeah. You know, and the ability to, to live in the relative world and live in the subtle world and really learn the lessons of the relative world in you know one of my you know one of my friends says deal with the problem on the level of the problem so obviously we have to deal with with the problem of terrorism on the level of the problem but you're right if we don't have an overarching viewpoint that that lets us put it in perspective we're never going to we're never going to grow up as a as a species yeah. You know, just, and I think maybe you need to do both. I mean, on the one hand, do I, yeah. don't, I don't have a problem with, you know, bombing some of these ISIS guys that are causing all this trouble and stopping them from, you know, exploding the Mosul Dam and things like that. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, if that's the only level on which we're going to deal with such problems, then problems will never end. Uh, maybe, exactly. they, maybe they won't exactly. anyway, but, you know, you have to kind of get to the source of a thing to, to really bring it. I mean, it's Marcios used to say, if you just water the leaves of the tree, you're not going to help the tree much. Go ahead and water the root, and that's going to enable the whole tree to flourish. Yeah. So there's, there's some kind of deeper root level to what's, going, what's going on in the world, and, and we need to attend to the surface things. You know, you have to go treat the Ebola vi- virus with doctors and do all the things we need to do, but there also needs to be a, a much more profound awakening in, in, in uh, collective consciousness for all these symptoms yeah. to, to really subside once and for all. Yeah, for sure, and I guess the question is, can we reach a tipping point in awakening such that it's going to save us from 
you know, the rapidly escalating effects of climate change, etc. Which has its own Every, tipping points. Which has its own tipping points, exactly. So, you know, in a certain sense, it's very important to avoid believing that we can just change our subtle consciousness and affect it, the whole. And it's very important to believe that we can affect anything without changing our subtle consciousness. So we're back with the paradox. Back with the both end, yeah. Yeah, both of the back end. And, and I do, you know, that I do believe that recognizing the non-dual nature of everything, recognizing that it is all fundamentally happening within a single field, um, it's terribly counterintuitive, you know, when things are falling apart. And it should never be an excuse for inaction, appropriate action. You know, we need to take appropriate action. Years ago, I sat on a plane next to General Wesley Clark. And it was in 2004. If you remember, he was briefly considered as the candidate for president. So we got in a conversation and I told him I was a meditation teacher. Either you were in first class or he was in coach. It, sure. it was, <laughs> no, it was, a, uh, it was a shuttle plane between Monterey and Phoenix, which is a one class plane. It's a, oh, little, okay, okay. You know, it's a little regional jet, which right. there's, you know, there's 16 rows, everybody sits together. Yeah. So um, we started talking and he said, and he said, let me tell you this story. Right before the Kosovo War, which for those of you who are, don't remember the Kosovo War, Wesley Clark at that time was the general in command of the NATO forces mm -hmm. that you know, actually won the military part of that war. So he was in Maine with his sitting in the church that his wife's family went to. His wife was a Catholic. And he was sitting there during the sermon. He was or mass or whatever it was, kind of bored. He looked up at the window and there was a stained glass window that represented St. George and the dragon. And uh, the spear of St. George suddenly turned into light and entered his heart. Wow. And he saw everything that was going to happen. He actually, he saw that they, they were going to win and that he would be fired from his command uh -huh. immediately after the win. And he said that it all happened. It was like, it was like he had seen the script. He'd seen the movie and he was just acting out his part in the movie. And I can imagine he didn't say this, but getting fired from his command two days after having commanded the forces that won the war was probably a great deal less painful for him because he had seen it coming. Mm. And he's not a, at least he said, he's not a religious guy. He's right. not a mystic. He just had one of those experiences that comes to us sometimes in moments of crisis that just show us the pattern. Yeah. Talk and, about getting zapped by some kind of divine intelligence. You know? Yeah, I know. It's not, I know. It's a, it's a wild story, isn't it? That's really cool. Yeah, I thought so too. I thought it was really cool. And you know, in a certain way, it just reveals how understanding the pattern, or just having a glimpse of the pattern, is so important in our process, you know, in our growth process. Mm. We don't suffer in the same way if we have a sense that it's part of a pattern. Huh. You know, that it's it's how it's meant to be, that it's destined, you know, it's it's allows a kind of surrender that's I think you know, one of the most profound cures for normal human suffering that there is. If our dogs could only understand that cutting their nails is good for them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Cats do. Yeah, they do. Cats don't mind so much, but the dogs, it's like yeah. this big trauma. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't understand it, you know. Um, well, it's, it's, about, it's sort of about growing up. I, you know, when I was a kid, I, I would have to have shots or yeah. blood tests, and I would freak out. I would run around, and I would say, no, no, not... And then, of course, you grow up and you go, okay, I need this. Yeah. Okay, it's going to hurt for a minute. It's all about perspective and 
and the maturation of consciousness. And the world is doing that also. Yeah, interesting. One thing I want to make sure we cover is, you know, if a person were to buy your book and they'd see the Durga on the cover and they'd flip through and see pictures of Lakshmi and all that. You I know, think it's Lakshmi on the cover. Oh, is it Lakshmi on the cover? Okay. Some people might think, well, what's going on? I mean, this, this is Hindu gods. They have forearms. They're carrying all these spears. Coins are dripping out of their hands. Are she really suggesting that uh, on some deep level, beings that look like that exist? Or are we really, are those just sort of mythological representations or artistic representations of kind of more fundamental forces of nature that are really universal in scope that, you know, might operate throughout the entire universe with all of its galaxies and that you're not, if you get right down there, you're not going to find a lady with four arms, but those somehow just um, symbolically represent the qualities of a deep force of nature that is in part governing the universe. I would say it's both and. Again, I like very much Ken Wilber's way of explaining this. He, ta you know, he talks about the four quadrants of reality. And one of the quadrants is, is our subjective experience, you know, our, what goes on in our mind and imagination. And then there's the second quadrant is the, our physical experience, the brain, you know, the body, our actual physical biology. And then there's there's a, another sphere of experience, which is the space of culture, you know, the, the interrelationships among living creatures. And, and then there's the, the physical experience of the collective, you know, the, the city, the planet, the family, the tribe, the city, the planet, you know. In other words, we're always dealing in multiple realities. There's our subjective experience, which, which occurs on different levels of consciousness, you know, waking state, dream state, meditative state, and the transcendent state, and probably others in between. Um, and then, so for example, if you look at consciousness, it is obvious, obviously there's consciousness acting through the brain, through the body. There's a physical brain that mediates our nervous system, our impulses. And then there's the purely subjective, subtle experience of individuality and of what it's like to be us inside a inside a human body having different levels of experience and in the same way you know we have a subtle unquantifiable experience of what's going on between us behind the words you know or through the words that's our we experience and we have our societies in other words everything is happening on an interior level and also on a physical level and how this applies to goddesses is that on the subjective level, these beings are experienceable in the subtle realm of dream and meditation as four-armed beings made of light, whose you know figures, whose clothes, whose iconography actually expresses the qualities of a particular energy. You know, so for example, Lakshmi, who's always pictured as very beautiful, and she has gold coins coming out of one of her hands, and Another hand is in this gesture, which says, don't be afraid. And she carries lot fully blooming lotuses. So Lakshmi is the goddess of the principle of abundance and fertility and wealth and beauty in the world. And this is obviously a subtle principle that, you know, that runs through cultures and runs through, it's apparent in the earth. Certain parts of the earth are fertile and certain parts of the earth are desert. So, you know, you could say that the, figure of Lakshmi that appears in meditation 
as a beautiful woman with gold coins coming out of her arm is a symbolic you know, representation of this, this force in nature and in culture. Right. And at the same time, when you see or feel the presence of the goddess Lakshmi in meditation or as an energy in your field, you're very sure that she's a very specific presence, mm -hmm. you know, a subtle person. So both are true, you know, in, yeah. on that subtle level of dream and meditation. So for instance, um, you know, I mean, Native American culture, Chinese culture, South, South American, <coughs> South African, all those other cultures <coughs> might have deities, they might understand the same principle, but they would, they would depict that, that expression of intelligence in an entirely different way. Maybe similar in the sense of benign and not threatening and a source of abundance, but not necessarily forearms and not, necess <coughs> not necessarily wearing an Indian sari and, and all exactly. that stuff. So, so you're just saying that in the Indian culture it's depicted this way. Off on Alpha Centauri, you know, if there's an inhabited planet there, that very same principle might be some green lady with tentacles or something, because that's the way they look there. And, yeah. and then they're just depicting that as, as abundance and b benign. Well, yeah, we can say that the human imagination invents deities that we can recognize. Mm -hmm. We could also say that energies appear in personified forms that the human beings who they appear to can recognize. So. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, as we always say, the ant god probably looks like a big ant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once you start having experiences of deity energies that, that clearly don't come from your mind, I mean, I've known so many people who, for example, my first experience of the presence of a deity energy, I don't know if I can explain this in a way that a skeptic can get, but a friend of mine who you know who was a ex-catholic who had always loved the virgin mary gave me this book that's published by a catholic press about the the appearances of the virgin mary in modern times you know fatima and medjugorje and and guadalupe and i'm reading the book mostly because my friend wanted me to read it and i start reading the story of the virgin of guadalupe which i won't go into but it's a very beautiful story about an indian peasant who was on his way to work one day and he saw this young girl standing in the snow and she told him to go to the church and tell them that this was the Virgin Mary who'd come to bless them and it goes on. But, and there's a huge shrine in Mexico City which has a picture of her and the cloak that she gave him which has her image which was imprinted on it. And it's a, you know, it's a very powerful miracle working shrine for Mexicans and for, for people in the Western United States. So I'm reading this and all of a sudden in the room, in the air, this energy appears. I suddenly find myself crying tears of love and I hear from inside this presence saying to me, I am she and I am your mother and I'm here for you. You can ask me for help. And this presence just stayed around me for about three days. Mm. I'm not a Catholic. I'm, I'm not a Christian. I was very involved in a Hindu tradition at the time. It was a totally spontaneous, very, very powerful manifestation. Where did that come from? I didn't make it up. You know, I, I was just reading a book. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, That's nice. I, yeah. So that experience and subsequent experiences really helped me understand that deity, that these subtle presences are, they're actually energy manifestations that have really 
their own reality and their own power. So people who've never heard of Hindu deities could and can have visions of Hindu deities. And I'm sure that in your tradition, they, you know, there have been a lot of people who, who had these kind of spontaneous visions that weren't, weren't imagined, that weren't coaxed, that, you know, you didn't, you weren't trying to have. Mm. You know, they, they have their own subtle reality. And there are also forces in nature who, you know, appear in different forms in different cultures. Yeah. But I think kind of the key point, which is maybe the main point of this interview, is that, you know, it's not just that there's this sort of impersonal, non-dual reality, and we are that, and that's it, end, yes. of, end of story. That there's as much um, richness and diversity and variety and... Uh, intelligent, um, hate to use the word intelligent design, but intelligent play uh, and display going yeah. on at all sorts of subtle realms of creation that are beyond our ordinary perception, as there are on the surface level of perception. If you watch the Discovery Channel and look at you know, shows about undersea life or you know, the, the Amazonian jungle and you see, wow, life is so amazing and rich and full of different expressions and creative explosion. That, that's only one dimension. There's a whole vertical dimension and many, 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 many strata as you progress yeah. through that vertical dimension. And the whole hierarchy is, is one kind of coordinated phenomenon that um, you know, we're capable of traversing ex consciously and experientially and that a very worthwhile field for exploration. Yeah, well said, well said. <laughs> it's, I pulled uh, that out of a hat as I went yeah, along. <laughs> that was, yeah, it, it's that, and I think that that's the thing that just as the, you know, to recognize the incredible richness of the subtle world so enriches your experience and so enriches your sense of who you are. It refines your heart, among other things. You find your heart, yeah. And you find the heart that's... Refines. That's, refines yeah, it, yeah. It, refines the, it refines the heart. Mm. And it also, but it also lets you find the heart in the world. Not because often we think that love is something that happens between human beings, but in fact, love pervades everything and when, as you start to recognize how much love is coming to you in very specific ways from forces in the universe that you can, you can communicate with, it's, it's just opens your awareness and your heart so magnificently. Do you also find even as, as you walk down the street, let's say, and you're, you're just seeing grass and the telephone poles and the people and this and that, do you also find that you kind of have this recognition as you're going along that you're you're kind of seeing the divine yeah you know you're, you're kind of seeing god in in all these forms you know there's a wonderful you know way of expressing this that love is recognizing the same consciousness in others as in yourself you know that 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 connection that's formed as you start to see the subtle just kind of rolling through everything and everyone is it is the sort of the essence of what's sometimes called shakta consciousness, you know, this recognition that everything that's, that exists in this world is a manifestation of the goddess taking form yeah. as all of us. So you can really fall in love with the world as the goddess, as well as, you know, fall in love with the world as Rick or as my cat Leo. <laughs> 
So it's it's just it just adds so much dimensionality to our daily experience. It demundanizes life. It reenchants your sense of of life. Yeah, that verse from the Bible comes to the mind that whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. You know, yeah. it's like. Yeah. You know, whatever you're doing to the world, you're doing to the body of God, whether in the form of a person or an animal or a tree or anything, you're, you're yeah. doing it to the body of God. Yeah. And, and how conscious that makes you when you have that recognition. Yeah. So I always say to people in the midst of this conversation, so just take it, take this understanding and just look at your own body with that recognition that it's every single part of your body is is an aspect of divine shakti of you know of sacred intelligence of the sacred feminine just manifesting as you and feel that your breath is you know you're being breathed by this shakti this goddess mm. and just let yourself actually experience yourself as you know kind of a mass of goddessness of shaktiness mm -hmm. and notice the state that that practice engenders in you yeah and it's not what I would call mood making either, because it yeah. really, there's really something real about that. And it, yeah. and it becomes more palpable over time as you continue to, to do your spiritual practice. It becomes more, it's not just an imagination, you know, that you're actually tuning into something which is a fact, which, yeah. which is a reality. Right, exactly. And it's like you notice it. Our attention is so, um, there's so much that we don't notice. Yeah. So when we bring our attention to it, it, it starts to reveal how true it is, how real it is. Yes, like I said in the beginning of this interview, I asked the question, what's, what's actually going on, you know? Yeah. Now, what's, yeah. Actually, what's actually going on is, well, we've been talking about it. There, <laughs> no, no need to add any more words to it. I think we've kind of gone at it every which way. Did you ever have a time in your life where the world seemed gray and dead and flat and lifeless? Yeah. Like maybe 50 years ago or something. And Yeah. Um, yeah, and I can remember that, and and I know that that's probably the way a lot of people still experience the world. Yeah, uh, um, and you, you hear people describing who are suffering from depression that that's the way the world looks, and all. And uh, there's, you know, such a very different way of perceiving the world. And I think any anything that people can do to realize that that's possible and to actually experience it that way yeah. is is so valuable. Yes, it is. And I do think that, that that is the action. It's the action of grace, you know, that really transforms your perception so that you can begin to see the world as utterly, completely alive. It's so important for us to recognize the possibility because that's what really allows us to open to, to the truth that's kind of staring us in the face. Yeah. Yeah. And it just keeps getting better. So as Robert Crumb yeah. said, keep on trucking. Keep on checking. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rick. This was a totally delightful conversation. Yeah. Um, before we conclude, tell tell people how they can connect with you, what, what you're offering that they can plug into. Yes, I have a website, which is www.sallykempton.com, which has a lot of resources on it, including CD meditations, um, a lot of articles that I've written. The most imminent thing that I'm doing is a course on the shift network called the wisdom goddess empowerment, opening the transpersonal gateways to your powers of desire, insight and action. It really is exactly that. It's about learning how to allow the goddess energies, the 
the divine sacred energies that, that are present in the universe to start revealing themselves to us through our own mind and heart. And it's on, um, on the SHIFT network, actually. I'm going to tell you the link, which I... I'll also link to it yeah. from your page on BatGap. Perfect. And it perfect. starts uh, Tuesday, August 26th, 2014. Yes, it's a, a seven-week class that's every Tuesday night for, mm -hmm. till, through October 2nd. Over the telephone and or on the it's internet? Over, or? It's both. It's, you, can tune it, you can call in to a number or you can do it as a webinar. Right. And uh, everything is downloadable. You also get transcripts. There will be discussion groups, a forum, you know, just a, a community experience, a supportive community experience. And you and do that kind of thing from time to time, don't you? So if people miss I do this that, one. Then... Yeah, I do that uh, pretty much every month. My own classes, which you can find out about through my website by going to the resource, to the, there's actually an, a tab at the top of my website that says uh, events and telecourses. I'll start my own telecourses again in November. Mm -hmm. And they're on different topics. The next one's on Doorways to the Infinite. And I do classes on different aspects of spiritual life, meditation, the practical sadhana, you know. How yeah, you so in other words, if somebody doesn't have any kind of practice and they want to learn something they can do on a daily basis, then you have things you yes. can teach them. I have many things I can teach them. Yeah. And I do, I give different levels of meditation practice, mm -hmm. uh, different levels of daily life practice. Mm -hmm. I also teach meditation on the um, internet site yogaglow.com, which is a yoga and a yoga site where um, I have I appear regularly. There's a new meditation every week on yogaglow.com from me. Cool. Um, Many resources. Yeah. And Barrett, I just want to say, even though we're talking on a very high metaphysical level, my basic orientation to spiritual practice is very practical. So you know, how do you apply it to your family life, how do you apply it to your work life? How do you apply it to your, you know, your mental states, to your moods? I really do believe that to transform us, any practice we do has to be applicable in any and all moments of life. So, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, everything we've talked about today, which as you say, a lot of it has been a very high metaphysical level, but it's kind of subtle mechanics of the universe stuff. But yeah. it, it really, the rubber really does meet the road. I mean, if you can really, live this stuff experientially it enriches ordinary so-called ordinary life so profoundly so yeah. it, it has practical implications it's not just like you know yeah airy fairy kind of it has practical implications and practical applications right as well yeah yes applications is a better word Alrighty. well uh, let me just make a couple of concluding remarks i've been speaking with sally kempton um you know pretty well by this time who she is. <laughs> there will be a page on batgap.com dedicated to this interview, which will have links to the various things Sally's been mentioning. It will also have a link to an audio podcast if you'd like to listen mm -hmm. to this and other interviews in audio. Uh, there's a discussion group that's that has its own little section for each interview, so there'll be a link to that. Cool. Um, yeah, there's a donate button, which I rely on people clicking in order to make this whole thing possible. And BatGap is a nonprofit organization, 501c3. There's a link to click on to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. So feel free to click on that. And uh, probably a few other things. Explore the menus. There's, there's a past interviews menu, which has like all the previous interviews indexed in four, about four different ways. So you can explore that. 
and uh, upcoming interviews are announced on another page. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week with a young fellow named Chris Grosso. Thanks, Sally. Thank you so much, Rick. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. Ha have a great week. I will.